How do you know that you are a child of God? What is the basis of your confidence? When it comes to discussions of law and grace, inevitably matters of assurance come up. If it is true that we are all sinful, and therefore we are all worthy of judgment, how can we, we retain hope that we have indeed been reconciled to God? If it is true that no amount of law-keeping can give us proper assurance of our status with God, then what can? I think it's an important question, right? How do you know that you belong in God's family? Paul's argument throughout chapter 8 is that God has done what the law cannot do, specifically by sending his son and putting his spirit within his people. By pouring out his spirit into his people, God has fundamentally changed who we are. That is what makes us different. Not that we're any better than anybody else. Not that we're more righteous than anybody else. Not that we're cleaner than anybody else or more elite than anybody else. But simply that God has shown his grace on us and given us his spirit who indwells us. That's what separates us out as his now, Paul is telling us all this because he's working from the basic assumption that you and I need to be reminded of not only what God has done, but what has come, what his redemptive work means for us because of what he has done, both in the present and in the future. Now, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 is a beautiful passage that helps us understand not only what God has done, but the eternal ramifications of what he has done. Who we have, we who have, in the, who have the spirit of God are the children of God. And that truth comes with amazing realities that I hope will encourage you. I hope it will strengthen you. I hope it will comfort you in even dark days like this where we live in so much death and chaos and turmoil. So hopefully today you'll be encouraged by this. So we're going to begin with a basic claim. Here's the basic claim that Paul gives. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And he means sons in a very generic way, like sons and daughters, right? So we are children of God. Now the word for there is interesting. For or because connects this section of text with the previous section in which Paul wrote about those who walk according to the Spirit. In Romans 8, chapter 1, uh, in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, Paul told his readers that God has done what the law cannot do, which means that now we can obey God's commands. That's the righteous requirement of the law. We can do things like not cheat on our wives. We can do things like being loving to others. We can do things like not gossiping and backbiting and judging one another. We can do things that the law requires because we have God's Spirit in us. Therefore... We are not debtors to the flesh. That means we don't have to live by our own willpower, by our own strength, by our own resolve and grit and effort, because it's never going to be good enough, right? I mean, we all know that's never going to be good enough. But we should live by the Spirit. In other words, according to the Spirit's power, according to the Spirit's strength and sanctifying work. Now, Paul made a big promise in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now in this, Paul describes his ongoing battle with sin. If you're a Christian, you are engaged in war at this very moment with yourself, okay? You have declared war on yourself. You have been living in war with yourself. You are an embattled person who is striving to fight with sin. And those who follow the Spirit into battle against things like their lust, their greed, their gossip, their hatred, their prejudice, their pride, their idolatry, and every other sin that they have, the promise is that those who go into battle with the Spirit will live. You will not die. You live by your own power, your own flesh. You live for your own self-gratification, your own self-sufficiency. You're going to die. That's just the reality. You live by the Spirit, you'll live. You won't die. That's a big promise. But it comes with a very dangerous calling. In essence, Paul is calling us to join the Spirit in putting to death all the things we really want most, isn't he? Isn't that crazy? I mean, who does Paul think he is? He's calling us to put to death all the things that my sinful heart naturally wants. I want self-vindication. Okay, does anybody else love being vindicated? Does anybody else love being the person that vindicates themselves? I mean, my goodness, who doesn't love when somebody speaks bad about us, ill about us, blames us for something, that we say just the right thing that levels them and vindicates us? I want the pleasure of self-gratification, of self-vindication. I want the, I want the self-gratification that carnal pleasure brings. That's what my heart naturally wants, isn't it? Our hearts are naturally bent towards sin. We are bent towards the angry outburst, the prideful need to be puffed up. We are bent towards self-medicating our sick souls with prestige and Positions and possessions and all the things that life has to bring. And Paul's basically saying, yeah, those things that you want most are going to kill you. But if you engage in the spirit to do this very painful work of self-mortification, it's a big word for killing the things that are sinful and that you crave the most in that sinful state you will live. So, that's the calling as Christians. It means that I'm not going to live for self-gratification. Yeah, that thing might feel good in the moment. Or yeah, that thing might do good for the moment. Or that position might give me the ability to tell people off whenever I want to. But the Spirit's work in that is to kill all that. And so as a Christian, I'm engaging in the Spirit to destroy and execute all those things that I would naturally want most. Why in the world would I do that? Right? I mean, just to think about it. Just, just, just think about it. You, there's, there's nothing, right, that should keep your hand from grabbing what you want and touching what you want and taking what you want and your mouth from saying the things that you want. There's nothing that should do that, Right? Well, the Spirit's work is to do exactly that. To kill and cut off, to execute, to behead, to lynch your sin so that you can live an obedient life to God. 
Paul promises that those who join in the Spirit's work and engage in such battle against sin will live. Why? The word for there means because. Because all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. Children of God. If we follow the Spirit into battle, this this logic's not hard to follow, guys. This is not complex theology. If we follow the Spirit into battle against our sin, then we will live because being led by the Spirit to be under His sovereign control and authority is proof that we are children of God. Children of God are those who want to submit to the Spirit's authority. Those who submit to the Spirit's authority are are, are those who are at war with sin. Simple logic there. If you're at war with sin, you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you're a child of God. You can work it this way and that way. If you're at war with sin, you have the Spirit. You have the Spirit, you're a child of God. If you're a child of God, you have the Spirit, and you're at war with sin. Okay, you can take it both ways. But the reality is, is that having the Spirit of God means that you're at war with sin, and you're a child of God, and God will not let his children die. That's the promise. How amazing is that? Why does it mean that those of us that put to death the deeds of the body will live? And then how is that connected with being God's children? Well, again, it's A plus B equals C. Those who engage in war and have the spirit, because the only way that you can engage in war against your own fleshly sin is if you have the spirit. Well, that's proof positive that you are a child of God. And God, being the perfect and good father, will never let his children die. He just won't let it happen. So that's how it all connects here. You know, oftentimes we just skip over everything that Paul said just to come to the adoption of sons passage. But I think it's, it's connected to a greater context. The gift of God's spirit poured out on his people is the means and the grounds by which we may be called the children of God and is evidence as we take up arms against our own sin. So then who are the children of God? Those who have and who follow the Spirit. In repenting, confessing, and being transformed out of sin. So just as a side note, this is why a person's conviction about their own sin their acknowledgement of their brokenness and their confession of their need for God's grace is so encouraging and so important in seeing the Lord's work. We live in a culture that covers up and leaves things covered, right? We live in a very private culture that doesn't want anybody else to know of our downfalls, that doesn't want anyone else to know about our weaknesses, that is mortified at the thought of somebody else finding out what they already know. That we're sinful. We live in a world that seeks to hide everything. My friends, we reap what we sow, and the fact that we have hundreds, if not thousands of churches at this very moment, deeply involved in sexual scandals, that's the result of that. When God's people try to hide sin, what's the result? Scandal. Because God is a God who outs sin. It's his work. God's a God of light, right? He's not going to let things hide in the darkness. Ephesians talks about how when God, when, when God is at work, what's the thing that happens? Exposure. 
My friends, as a church, when people's sin gets exposed, when their brokenness gets exposed, when they start talking about themselves in the honest, transparent way about saying, I am a broken, sinful person, that's not proof of corruption. That's proof of the Spirit of God doing what only God can do. It's the church that looks perfect. It's the Christian that looks perfect. It's the person that acts as if they have no flaws, they have no problems, everybody else is sinful but me. That's the person that's far from God. It's the person that the closer they get to God, the more the light shines and exposes them for who they are. My friends, that's, that's the reality of this. The spirit at work in us means that it's going to draw out our brokenness. People should see that at Grace Church, Christians are fighting sin. There are men here who are actively embattled against lustful thoughts and desires. There are women here who are actively engaged and enraged that they are tempted by gossip. There are women here that are actively fighting against the ten, their own tendency, not just somebody else's, their own tendency to backbite. There are men here that are actively engaged in this battle to do everything possible to fight greed and power-mongering. Now, what has to happen for that to happen? Well, we have to be sin, acknowledge we're sinners, Right? We have to acknowledge that these things exist in us and that these desires are at war inside of us and that we need the Spirit. God forbid people know that we're needy people. God forbid people know that we need God. Why are we so mortified by all that? My friends, God knows even if everybody else doesn't know, he knows all those sinful things you hide. He sees all the corruption. He hears the molestations and the, the abuses and the assaults and the porn addictions. He, he knows better than anybody else does. You can't pretend with God. We should be a church that acknowledges and knows that we live before an audience of one. You might think you know what happened in this situation. God does know. And not only does he know, he knows your heart. You tell whatever you want to anybody else. God knows at the end of the day. I pray for a church that doesn't look clean. I pray for pastoral staff that don't look like they never struggle. I pray for deacons and elders that don't pretend as if they don't have anger issues. I pray for church members that don't pretend that they can be hypocritical sometimes, racist sometimes, prejudiced sometimes, angry sometimes, violent sometimes, fight with their wives sometimes. I pray for a church that acknowledges that beats their chest and acknowledges their need for God to get out of that and then picks up the weapons to go to war. Not against immigrants or shooters in schools, but against their own sin. That's the work that God has called us to. To take up arms, 
against our own war. And what's the, what's the weapon that we pick up? The spirit of God himself by whom we can kill greed and gossip and prejudice and pride and self-pity and all these things that we live in. That's the work we're called to. A growing humility and transparency about our sin as well as a growing desperation that's the word that I'm using intentionally. A growing desperation for God's grace are proof that you are the children of God. Are proof that you are the children of God. I want to wreck your paradigm with Romans 8 today. You may look at the big presidents of denominations and the Pope himself, and you may look at these pastors and deacons and elders and say, man, they look so shiny. My friends, that is not what it's meant to be in a Christian life. We are growing in our transparency of our brokenness. We are growing in our desperation for God. That's maturity as children of God. That's the only proof we have. You hide sin, you're actually possibly proving that you may not even know God. Because knowing God, getting closer to God, growing more dependent on God, guess what? It's gonna bring his light into your dark life. I'm so encouraged when I sit with men around my fire pit and they can say, man, I lost it with my wife this week. I'm like, you too? We can pray for each other that we are sinful humans. I love it when women get together and just say, my kids have... Oh, sometimes I feel like I want to eat them, you know. Like, I'm glad when mothers feel the transparency to say that and just say, I don't have it together. I, I use cloth diapers and sometimes it just doesn't feel like it works and I want to strangle somebody with it. All that transparency and that honesty is good for the soul and it's proof that God is at work in his people. But yet we've got to, oh, you just, you, we can't talk about it. We can't talk about our failings. My friends, to be a spirit-led Christian, and this is the paradox of the gospel, the more immature you are, the more hidden and private you will be, the more ready you will be to confess that you are broken, and the less dependent you are upon God. The more mature that you grow in Christ, all those opposite things will happen. Transparency about your own weakness, confession about your own sin, and a desperation for God's help. So, them's the cards we're playing with today, okay? So, and they come from Romans 8. So I hope you're ready to deal with that because to have the Spirit means to confess and engage in war with your sin, but then to have the Spirit is proof that you're child of God. So there's a big, there's a big painful side of this where, yes, we're at war with ourselves and it hurts and it's painful and boy, does it feel like crucifixion. And yet it's when we engage in that painful reality that we have the amazing proof that we are the children of God. Right? Now, in his discussion of law and spirit, Paul argues that the grounds by which we know we are children of God is not based on how well you obey the law. It's not based on how religious you seem to everybody else. Proof of being children of God is not how together your life seems compared to everybody else. Proof of being a children God of God, a child of God, is founded on one and only truth. The Spirit of God is at work in you. That's it. 
has actually nothing to do with what you bring to the table. It has everything to do with what he's done. The indwelling spirit shows that we are the children of God. But that is amazing truth. Just, just, just someone walking up to you and saying, hey, if you have the spirit, you have the child of God. You're our child, child of God. That's an amazing premise, isn't it? Amazing claim. You are children of God. Amen? That's awesome and great. But Paul's not content just telling you that. He wants to tell you all the things that come from that. So he tells you that if you're at war with sin, that's proof that you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, that's proof that you are a child of God. Now let's delve into all the blessings that God gives to his kids. Let's talk about all the good gifts. And he lists out three in particular. It, if you want to study what God gives to his kids, it'd be an amazing New Testament study to, to dive through that. You even see it some in the Old Testament for sure. But in this text, we find three. We're going to see that God gives his kids access, assurance, and an inheritance. Okay? Access, assurance, and inheritance. Okay? Um, I had to change the, the inheritance ones. I almost created some kind of A word with inheritance just to be illiterate. I was like, ah, we're not doing that. We're, going, we're not going there. So anyway, access, assurance, and then just for you to remember, well, inheritance, right? So didn't even start with an A. So there you go. Um, the first outcome of our spirit-given status as God's sons and daughters is that we have, what did I just say? Access to God. Paul writes... For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now the contrast created in this verse speaks of fear and approachability. We have not been given a spirit of slavery to fall back. The words fall back and the words fear, all of that highlights inapproachability, right? You see a big grizzly when you're out on a hike, your natural reaction is probably to... Step back, unless you're me with a camera. But you tend to step back, fall back in fear, right? There's an inapproachability there that you don't want to approach because of the fear that there is. Kind of similar to the way that the Israelites were afraid and backed away from God when he revealed himself on Mount Sinai. He reveals himself, thunder, lightning, big flashes, booming voice, and what do they do? They fall back and tremble. And so we have not been given that kind of spirit. When it comes to our relationship with God, through his spirit, we do not live as fear-beaten slaves. You see, a slave will obey his master because he's afraid of punishment, right? Um, in stricter countries, people will obey their governments because they're afraid of being imprisoned or being killed, right? That is not the kind of obedience we're talking about when we talk about Christian obedience, right? Paul already said, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we're not fearing condemnation or punishment because that's been solved. The punishment for our sin has already been poured out on the cross. So when we live in obedience, it's not in this sum, I'm shaking because God's a tyrannical master that might smite me dead if I disobey him. He is a holy God. He will discipline his kids. He will make sure that we're not living in sin. But that's not technically living in the spirit if we live that way. Sons and daughters, by contrast to slaves, do not live in fear. Their obedience to a good father is not driven by fear of punishment 
but by the joy of having him as a good father. My kids and I have a great relationship. We, we love each other dearly. And my prayer is, yes, they will be disciplined if they don't do what I tell them to, right? So there's a healthy respect and reverence. But our relationship is most healthy when they want to obey me just because I'm their dad who loves them. That's the, that's the best. That's the sweetest moment. If my kids are always going, better make my bed because my dad's going to spank me if I don't. Well, that's, we're not living out in this joyful, free relationship, are we? Now, if, if they say things like, I don't want to hit my sister because I love my dad. My dad would never hit me, so I'm not going to hit my sister because I'm living in this enjoyment. Right, Timothy? <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. Next time you hit your sister, we'll find out how true that is, huh? <laughs> but I, I, I long for my children at our healthiest moments. I long for my children to bask in the enjoyment of having me as their father, not in the fear of what I might do if they disobey. My friends, as Christians, we're constantly walking around like slaves before master God. Oh, I've got to stay in line or God might just zap me with a thunderbolt. My friends, that is not the reality of what God has called you into. God has called you into something else. God doesn't just terrify you like a master terrifies slaves. He's a father. Instead of a spirit of slavery. You see, it would have been totally just and righteous for God to save us from our sin and then to make us slaves. And then to say, obey me or die. Right? It, it, it'd be totally just for God just to do that. You step out of line, the first lustful thought, I'm going to kill you. It'd be totally just for God to do that. God doesn't do that, though. That is not who God is. God is a father who is good and woos us into obedience. By his goodness, we have not been given a spirit of slavery, but we've been given the spirit of adoption. The word for adoption, huioethia, okay? That word, and I totally mispronounced it, but I probably shouldn't say anything because you would never know. That word is a weird word complex. You got the huil, right, which is son, okay? Thesia, which is place of. So we've literally been given the place of sons. That's what the word adoption in Greek means here. We have the spirit that has, is proof of our place of sonship. In other words, we've been given by the spirit through whom now we can enjoy our status, not as slaves, but as sons and daughters. Just bask in that for a moment. By faith in Christ, God has justified us, judging our sin in Christ and counting us legally righteous and innocent before him. He has judged our sin. It is paid for. It is finished. You are now innocent in his eyes. Why? Because he looks at his son's death as your punishment and he looks at his son's righteousness as your righteousness. He looks at you like he looks at his son. I got goosebumps saying it. I don't know if you guys got goosebumps hearing it. Do you want to know how God views his people? Not with some snub-nosed, tyrannical look at us like, why can't you be good enough? Don't you realize what I did for you? God looks at his people... In Christ. 
Which means that when he looks at those of us who depend on him, who depend on Christ, who have faith in Christ, he doesn't look at us like the sinful, nasty, ragamuffin sinners that we are. He looks at us with the same longing and affection that he sees his son. Man, how sad is it that we make God into a God that he's not? As if he's always got that abusive father, never pleased eyebrow, right? As if God's walking around like this father who can never be happy about us. Look at all the things I do for you and you can't even clean up your own room. Guys, that is not the image of God that we're given in Romans 8. God's not sitting back going, why don't you meet my standards? God is coming towards us as he comes toward his son. There's a relationality there, which is so beautiful, knowing that the mess that I am, even the mess that I am, God still chooses to see me like he sees his son. He loves me like he loves Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And just as he would never throw Jesus out of the Trinity, because that would be impossible, right? God could never split himself. I can never be cast out from my Father's presence. Because he looks at me like he looks at Jesus. If you have the Spirit, then you are a son of God a daughter of God. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's interesting that he kept the Aramaic here in the English translation because it's Aramaic and then it's Greek, right? It's Abba, Patros, right? So Abba, Father. They kept the Aramaic here because it's so unique. There's just some words, especially when they're used, that just, just capture Without, they don't need translation. Abba is, Abba is this uniquely intimate and affectionate word for father. It's like, dear father, my, my loving father. It's a, it's a very soft and connected term. It's not like, hello, father. No, it's, it's not like that. Abba is more connected. It's more intimate. Some people say it doesn't equivalent, but I think it does. I think it's kind of like going, hey, Dad. I think it connects in that way because that's an intimate term, right? A formal term is father, right? Or progenitor, my progenitor, how are you today? Like, that's, that's all formal. That's, that's not how we approach God. We don't approach God like, my father. No, it's Abba. Let's just lose the formality here. We can call him Abba. And it's because of the spirit of his son that now lives in us that we can now call out to Abba. And he uses this word, cry out. What does it mean to cry out? Like, cry out is this, how many of you have had kids? Just a show of hands. Come on, that's not, not a bad question. Okay. Okay, you've had kids. How many of you have had kids that had nightmares? Okay. How many of you have had kids that have cried out in the middle of the night for you? Okay, that's the cry out that he's talking about here. This is deep cry out. It's an impassioned plea. It's a deep cry. I just want to paint this picture for you. Because we are the children of God, we have access to do what Jonathan can do to me in the middle of the night. Few people can walk into my house and scream, Justin! At 2 a.m. in the morning. 
There's not very many people that can do that and live. <laughs> but there's this one strange little human being, my youngest, who at 2 a.m. in the morning can cry out, da, 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 da. I come running, not in anger, but joyfully. My son needs me. He called out to me. It's a joyful interruption to my REM cycle. <laughs> I've got this little ball of fear and terror. He's terrified and I scoop him up into my arms and it's okay, buddy. Let's go fall back to sleep together and I go rock him back to sleep. And it's just this, I wish I could say I was angry about it. I complain about it, don't get me wrong. But man, am I going to miss that. I'm his Abba. And he can cry out to Abba. He's got access to me like no one else has. Christian, you have access like that to the God who created galaxies. You have access like that to the God who made all things. Here's what I don't understand. You know, we, we, we live as if we don't have that access. We've made this incredibly gracious and gentle and loving God into an abusive father who wants nothing to do with us. Don't make me come down there, right? If I get up, you're dead. Like, right? Like, that's not who God is. God is an Abba who's passionately pulled to his children when they cry out, Abba. That's the kind of access we have because of the, the Spirit. Now, I know that for many of you, Father is not a good term, right? Your, your Father did things to you that a Father should never do. Your Father hurt you in ways that you're still reeling from. You bear the wounds and the scars of all that your father did that shouldn't have been done. My friends, when the Bible speaks of God as father, he is not using that as a metaphor for human fathers. This is the archetype father. This is perfect father. There's no experience on earth. Our fathers may at times remind us of God the father, but they are not the father. We do not know this kind of goodness. We have not experienced that kind of goodness. Not on human, earthly standpoint. For him to be our Abba is the deepest expression that Paul and all the other biblical writers, Jesus himself, could come up with to, to talk about God's goodness to us, his affection for us, and his acceptance of us. That's, that's, the, that's the clearest image he's got. What is God like? What is God to us? He's, he's not just Lord. That's true, he is Lord. He's not just master. Yes, he is a, a master. He's a curious. Not a, he's not just a king. Yes, he is a king, but not just a, above them all, the deepest connective word that can be used to describe God's passionate loving of his kids is Abba. We can't even translate it. It's so beautiful and wonderful. Can I ask you then, do you live freely in that access? 
you see, we do a couple of things. Typically, we as Christians, we, we don't want to bug God, right? We don't want to bother God. He's got a lot of things to deal with at the moment, right? He's kind of doing a lot. I'm just like, every time I hear that, you know, I, I'd pray about it, but I know God's got bigger things to do than deal with me. I'm like, have you heard the word omnipotent? He can, do, he can do everything. It's not worked. It's not like God's sweating at the moment. It's not like God's like, well, let me work you into my agenda. God didn't have a schedule. God made time. Like, does he have time for you? Well, absolutely he has time for you. He spoke and made time. Absolutely. We speak of God as if we're some kind of burden. We deal with our, we sit and we mourn and we sit in the muck. We wake up from the nightmares in life and all we do is sit there weeping when dad's just in the next room. We see the scary shadows moving and instead of calling out to him, we just sit there and think that we can bear it on our own. We complain to others about the way our lives have ashed out. We, we just, oh, you just can't understand. We can hardly bear it. Yes, you can't bear it. That's just the point. God will always give you things you can't handle. Because he's the Abba that can handle them. That is a heresy that's coming to the church. God won't give you things you can't handle. That's not true. David couldn't handle Goliath. Israel couldn't handle Egypt. You couldn't handle your sin. God always allows us to have things that we can't handle. Why? Because he can and that's the point. He's the Abba. We're the children. We can't handle it. Let us then, this is what Hebrews says, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy to find grace to help in time of need. Are you drawing near to God? Are you trying to adult it yourself? There's nothing more painful than a child trying to be an adult too quickly. Are you trying to adult your spiritual life when God has called you to trust and depend in him? I mean, call out. I mean, you even have 1 Peter 5. You deal with anxiety, casting all your cares upon him. Why? What's the promise? Why should we? And it's amazing how it says it. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the right time he might exalt you. That's the first verse. The next verse that comes is casting. How do we humble ourselves before God? By casting all our cares upon him, knowing that he does what? cares for you. So when you deal with your own anxiety on your own and don't cast it upon God, number one, you're pridefully acting as if God doesn't care for you. And number two, you're pridefully acting as if you can handle it. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your cares because he cares for you. That's the access we have. You know, in life, maturity is marked by how independent we grow from our parents. Timothy, this year, has began making his own scrambled eggs. Abigail has began helping to take care of the pets, and they're growing in independence. As children, 
they depend on me for food, for housing, and for other basic needs. But as they mature and grow, they will depend on me less, hopefully, right? Some of you are like, well, we'll see. Um, but that's the idea of growing up, right? That children grow up and they end up buying their own food. They end up paying their own mortgages or rent and inevitably become self-sufficient. And maybe someday the tables get turned and they end up taking care of you, Right? But that's not the way spiritual maturity in childhood works, is it? It's just not the way it works. The Spirit does not make us more adult-like. The Spirit makes us more child-like. Do you realize that? To grow up in the faith, in the gospel, is not to grow up in independence, it's to grow down in dependence. That's what it means to be an adult, or to, to be a spiritual adult, is someone who knows that you need God even more. As a Christian, you know you've reached spiritual adulthood when you've stopped acting like an adult and enjoyed the fact that God has called you to be a child. That you can't handle it on your own. Now, by itself, that's an incredible blessing. We'll deal with this next one pretty quickly. He's given us access, but the Spirit also gives us assurance. Assurance. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of adoption, reminds us that we are God's children. Now, bear witness means to testify. I'm not the only one, and I know this because I've, I've, I've talked with everybody. Even as Christians, there are times that we struggle with doubting our place with God, isn't there? Our connectivity with Him, our justification. How could God love someone as prideful as us? How could God want a son or daughter who struggles to pray like we do? How could God want someone who so easily slips into sin? It's in the moment of facing those terrible, merciless prosecutors that the Spirit clears his throat, takes a stand, and says, they're the children of God. Drops the mic and steps aside. The Spirit of God testifies. Whatever accusations your mind and heart give you, the Spirit of God is the final word. They are the children of God. He silences it. Why? Not because I am consistently good. Not because I perfectly obey God. I can know I'm God's son. Why? Because the Spirit inside of me cries out to Abba, Father, the fact that I even want to cry out, the fact that I long for, the fact that I have this instinctive desire in times of trouble to draw near to God is proof in and of itself that I am a child of God. Because guess what? I, as a sinner, would never want that. By myself, without the Spirit of God, I don't want God. I don't want His fatherly hand. I don't want his protection, his provision. I don't want his care and comfort. That's, that's proof of being in the flesh and completely dead in the flesh. But when the Spirit of God is given, he gives this innate desire to experience and long for the loving and merciful hand of God, your Father. So let me just ask you, do you long for God's love in times that it's really dark? Do you find yourself just kind of hungering for that and craving that? Do you find yourself weeping for and wanting more of uh, God's proof in this dark world that he is there and he is with you? Do you cry out to Abba? Do you seek 
refuge in God? Do you go to him when you face temptations that are too strong for you and say, God, if you don't stop me, this is way bigger than me. Do you do that? And if you do, then the proof that, that, that is proof that you have the spirit of God in you. And inevitably, that is proof that in his bearing witness that you are the children of God. Anyone that wants God as father, not just claims God as father, but wants God to pour out his fatherly care, that comes from one place. It comes from the spirit of God. To me, there's some days that I have such a bad day that just the proof that I want God to be my dad is enough. That's the spirit of God working in me what I cannot do for myself. Third, we have access, we have assurance, and finally we have an inheritance. Paul reasons this, that if we are children, then we are also heirs, right? Heirs of God and heirs with Christ. So if you're children, you're heirs. You get all the things that your father is going to give you. Well, what do we get? Well, first off, we inherit God. Heirs of God. That's what he said. That's the best way he puts it. Heirs of God. You inherit God. The supreme blessing of being in covenant with God is that we get not just land, not just blessing, not just wealth, not just eternity, but him. We get him. We inherit God. Not only do we inherit God, we are fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs, which means that we get to participate in all the things that belongs to Jesus. Jesus died, he rose again, and then he says this, I am ascending to my father and your father. To my God and your God. All the things that Jesus has, he gives to us as well. Everlasting life, brand new resurrection, complete unhindered access to God at all times of the day. The promise that we will live in new creation under the creaturely and fatherly care of God. Creatorly and fatherly care of God. All that's ours. We have participated with Christ in this. His death was our death. His burial was our burial and his resurrection was our resurrection. And then Ephesians adds that when he was raised up and seated, that we were raised up and seated with him. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. How awesome. He didn't just save us. He saved us and gave us a seat at the table of the kingdom. What for? So that you will get the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness. Can someone please parse what that means for me? Immeasurable. Can't count it. Immeasurable. Pretty self-explanatory. Of his grace, the thing you don't deserve. In kindness. That's still to come. As great as what you have is now, greater things are on the way. What does the inheritance look, for, look like for God's kids? More of him. And much, 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 much more of him that they can't even count. Grace, grace, 
kindness from God himself. It's one of these things that, you know, you start to eat and you think that your dinner's done and there's more to come. Or like your preacher's preaching, you think surely he's nearing the end and there's more to be said. I love it. Saw Elliot kind of look over at Tara like, come on, man, what is he wrapping this up? That's what life is going to be like in eternity. We think surely we've reached the bottom of God's kindness. Surely he cannot be more gracious and kinder than this. And then God's like, oh, that was just the appetizer. Here comes the first round of this limitless, roundless grace and kindness that he gives to us for all ages. That's what we have, provided we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with Christ. To fight your sin will feel like suffering. It'll feel like crucifixion. Scripture talks about to be a disciple means to take up a cross, to be crucified with Christ. That happens on a daily basis when we mortify all the things we naturally want to do. It's painful, isn't it? To set all those things aside and to kill them every day. To set aside our pride every day and slaughter it. And yet, we engage in that kind of work with the help of the Spirit, we inherit glory with Christ. So my friends, I have nothing left to say. I have much more to say and yet nothing left to say other than if you, have, if you are engaged in war with sin, that is proof you have the Spirit of God. If you have the Spirit of God, that is proof you are a child of God. And if you're a child of God, then you have access to God at every moment. You have assurance that he is your father. Not metaphorically, but in a real, true way. And if you are children, then you are also heirs. And one day you will be sipping and supping on the amazing kindness of God, dish after dish, wine goblet after wine goblet, without end. Let's pray. <coughs> father God, I pray, Lord, in this very long sermon that I've preached, that you will... Uh, work your good work, that something will stick out to your people and that your spirit will move in such a way that will bring people hope, encouragement, even conviction, Father, that they will see their sin, not as just something that angers you, that they will fight your sin, not just because they're afraid of some kind of punishment, but that they will fight their sin because you are a good Father who lavishes love upon us. So God, as we go about our day and our weekend, I pray, God, that you will help us bask in the truth, that you have made us the children of God. We love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.